This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Hello, hello. Welcome to Erased Podcast. I'm your host, Colette Bowers-Zinn, sitting right next to the lovely Lisa Johnson. And we are here today <laughs> to discuss a whole bunch of things, but I, we got to start with like the most glaring current event in education right now, which is this whole hot mess that's going down in Utah, where they actually, at a local charter school... Public charter school. Public charter school. They actually had the nerve to allow folks to opt out of Black History Month. Yep. Month-long celebration. Learning. It's not even the celebration. You know I'm a proponent of let's move past the celebration. Right. No, it was a whole curriculum. Correct. Yeah. Yep. So yep. half of me is like, it doesn't even warrant discussion. And the other half is like, what in the absolute world is going on? Well, the sad thing is it took the local NAACP chapter noticing for them to even start to backpedal. But this is something that... that Not the families, 300 and something plus families in the school. Correct. <laughs> An outside organization. And there are three black students and 322 Right. I won't even get started on like it's White History Month, all the 11 other months right. of the year. But here's my thing. This is what I was talking to you about in episode, starting in episode one. There are people out here who legit feel this way. Yes, sir. And, and empowered to feel this way. Correct. Yes, absolutely. So today we're going to talk about the fact that schools are often steeped with systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And that is that all of the systems in place, curriculum, policies, procedures, both formal and informal practices can actually undermine the ability of students of color to learn and thrive. So right now, in the racial climate of reckoning, education systems and some of the long-held practices sustaining these systems are the logical places to start. So we're going to take a look at what systemic racism looks like in independent schools, the effects of said systemic racism and how we parents and all members of our school communities can combat the systemic racism baked into the schools. And instead, we're going to make education an entry point for racial equity. Quote, unquote. Yes, Speaking yeah. of which, I, get, I have the honor of introducing our guest today, Dr. Jamila Lee Scott, a.k.a. Dr. J. She's a community-engaged scholar, nationally renowned speaker, and the author, Black Appetite, White Food, Issues of Race, Voice, and Justice Within and Beyond the Classroom. She currently serves as an assistant professor of social justice education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she's the co-founder and co-director of the Center of Racial Justice and Youth-Engaged Research. Dr. J's research examines the relationships among language, race, and power, and she uses those inter intersections as an analytical tool for understanding educational inequity to transform schools from institutions grounded in white supremacy and Eurocentric ideals to institutions that truly foster equity. Dr. J, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So I have to ask, what do you think about this Black History Month being a... Oh, oh my goodness. Right, that half of me that's like, oh God, I can't. Um, but then, you know, we, we already know this is, you know, Breonna Taylor's police report was for uh, blank pages that said that there were no injuries to her body. 
the level of erasure that happens when it comes to black lives in this country is unmatched. And so it doesn't feel surprising to me for us to be rendered invisible in this way. We know that black history is American history, but we know that it is, this is just a microcosm of what happens with us on an everyday basis, which is why we're having this conversation at all. Absolutely. So let me back up a, a second and just ask you, when was the last time you personally felt erased? Mm, you hit me with something. Deep. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, just quickly. Know, I, did a, I did a talk not too long ago, and it was right after the insurrection at the Capitol. And when I did the talk, I showed an image of the noose that was erected there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of people didn't catch it. It was on the news, but, it, you know, I don't think, that, I don't know that was overemphasized. A white woman emailed me later to tell me that I should be careful about my media literacy skills mm. and that it looked like in the top right corner of the image that it was photoshopped. And there was just something about that interaction that, you know, although I came into her institution as the keynote and the designated expert on the topics that I was exploring, she felt the need to invalidate and to try to correct me. She actually asked me to send her proof, to send her my sources so that she could validate and render what I showed as as legitimate. Oh, the entitlement. From her white white perspective. Right, the entitlement. the last time. Oh, I got your proof. What did, did you do anything? You know, I had a relationship with the organization itself. I knew she came from the organization. So what I did is I emailed her and I, I assured her that I didn't need any education on media literacy. <laughs> and I also let her know that while this may seem like an atrocity to her, it's something that we live in our everyday lives. We're not surprised at it, yeah. about it. And I, and I left it there. She apologized profusely afterwards because she realized I think she realized very quickly that she was out of pocket. What she had done. Out of pocket. I wanted to try to be as restorative as possible while holding my boundaries. So that's always an interesting balance. So, Dr. J, you see framing as critical. And in your words, I started to see education as a powerful entry point for racial equity, in particular for centering and celebrating the power of marginalized communities that are often disregarded because of the way institutions frame success. That's very eloquent. If you were a parent in the community of a private school, how do you start that conversation within the school? And who needs to be in that conversation? As a parent, I start the conversation by illuminating the fact that education or schooling rather in this country has historically been used as a sorting mechanism, not for meritocracy or helping people to have social mobility, but as a sorting system to perpetuate the social stratification that we have along the lines of race and class, particularly in this country. Mm -hmm. And while schooling is often framed as a space where there is this equal access, if everyone just pulls themselves up by their bootstraps, we understand from the outcomes and the testimonies and the lived realities of our people that it does not do that work, that it causes far more harm than, than good. And so I would illuminate those disparities, what what Dr. Gloria Latin Billings calls the education debt as opposed to the achievement gap, mm. and expose the way that that is happening along the lines of race and class, and talk about what it means for the most marginalized, most vulnerable people to be at the center of the conversation, because that's where we get some truth, those things on the margin, you know, 
Toni Morrison has that that collection called What Moves at the Margin. There's something about what moves at the margin that can really decenter and destabilize our reality in a meaningful way. And so if you're a parent on the on the ground level and you don't have that background, that information, that research done, how do you mm-hmm. step into this work and how do you start that conversation? I mean, I think it's really important for private schools in particular. We have a, a false conversation about what our schools are doing to adequately prepare young people for their reality. As a parent, my concern and my point of advocacy would be that if we are not really addressing issues of equity, if we are not reflecting our social reality as much as possible in the school environment, then we're under-preparing these young people for the real world. That they are not being exposed to what's really going on because the the curriculum is so rigid, it's so whitewashed, it's so Eurocentric, it's not inclusive. It's not amplifying um, the rich diversity of everyone. And that's not the world that we live in. Amen. I and love so that that's part of the conversation that as a parent, it's really important that a lot of these kids are going into school, going through the Ivy League track, getting to their jobs and falling flat because they've been taught to test, but they haven't been taught to engage meaningfully with their reality. They haven't been exposed to diverse ways of knowing and being in real ways. And so how is this particular space, if it's too insulated, isolated, and not in touch with what's really going on, how is it preparing students adequately for the real world? Amen. Amen. So sticking with the parent theme, how is it showing up? Like parents need to be able to confidently assert this argument. How visible are some of the biases in our schools? We don't want to be abstract. Like what is the stuff that is reinforcing the systemic and institutionalized racism in our buildings and and particularly in the classrooms? So when we talk about systemic racism, we have to remember that systemic racism is happening on both ideological and institutional levels. It's the norms and values that we center and institutionalize that come to inform the policies and practices that we actualize. And so, for example, in Malden, Massachusetts, there were two black girls who were suspended. They got detention. They couldn't go to prom because they had box braids in their hair. Mm. Right. And that policy that was in place that made it illegitimate for them to have that hairstyle is an institutionalization of anti-black. There is a logic, there is an ethos, there are ideologies that shape what here is deemed appropriate in that school. The same thing comes with language standards. The same thing comes with what kind of curriculum is centered. It's those ideological values that are rooted in a history of white coloniality that show up in the way that Black bodies continue to be regulated and disciplined in school. In the silence, right, the kind of silence that happens that when, when young Black people are going to school and there is no conversation about the racial uprising that are happening all over the globe. That is gaslighting. It is traumatic in the ways that racialized incidents happen from both educators and their peers and then are not dealt with. I just did a racial healing workshop with some black youth and the testimonies about their white educators and peers and not being held accountable in their schools, it was so painful that we literally wept. Amen. We wept. It's showing up every day. And our young people don't often have spaces of refuge 
to name it because the, the institutions themselves are not always equipped to see it since it's been deemed so normal. And with what they articulate as good intent, they are actually doing potentially more harm in that ignorance. My son in the spring, I sat in on one of his community meetings at school post all of the Black Lives Matter protests in Los Angeles. And the school's message is delivered by the principal was we're all in this together. And I wrote them after I was like, we are absolutely not all in this together. And to not acknowledge directly what is going on and then follow with we're all in this together is insulting. Or not to respond at all. Well, they didn't respond. That's not a response to say we're all in this together, especially when it's incorrect. And I got pushed Mm -hmm. back on and, you know, exhausted, left the conversation. But if you were to ask them, they would claim to be very well intended and yet doing more harm. Amen. So Dr. J, given all this, what fixes should we be focused on in the school? And then at home, how can parents talk to their kids about all of this at home? I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between fugitivity and abolition. Wait, let me pause you there one sec. You got to break that down. So that we can (laughs) hear you again. It's between what and what? Fugitivity. Awesome. And abolition, right? So there's a lot of work going on right now that are, you know, really championing and taking on the work of abolitionist movements. And alongside that, our ancestors, in the face of a system of racial hatred, with their eye on abolition, found themselves in need of refuge to be fugitives, right? And when you are a fugitive, you have to break free from a system that's trying to define you as something that you know you're not. And you have to find spaces of freedom and refuge intermittently from refuge to refuge. You have to find those spaces with the goal of freedom. Mm -hmm. But in finding those spaces and having that agency, your mind is set on the fact that this system needs to be abolished and dismantled if we're actually going to survive. This is the logic that I believe needs to frame our work right now, that we have to dismantle white supremacy. We have to dismantle systemic racism. And oftentimes when we have those conversations, people think it's too radical and it's too big. But this is why simultaneously that refuge looks like the moving from freedom to freedom. What is the work that we are doing in, in the most immediate time to make sure that our children are safe? to make sure that they are moving through systems of harm with that least harm to them as possible. So in the work that I do specifically, this is why we have the Racial Healing Collective at my center. We are creating spaces of refuge and equipping students to play the game and to change the rules at the same time. Amen. And and to me, those are two very important things. Because a lot of times we think if we teach them to play the game and then they go and they get into a position of power and they won the game. And that's not true. We have to dismantle this system of hate, even if some of us make it through. That's that's just not equity. I was just going to say, you mentioned that, you know, I think a lot of people, and I agree with you, think this is so big that it's impossible. So boil it down to the person who is really trying to figure out what do I do to help my child? Where do they start to dismantle something that is 400 years in the making? So I want to say first that you start with refuge because that's the only way to be safe right now, yeah. right? That refuge looks like with our young people, not leaving them in systems of harm under the pretense 
that these systems are meant to really give them the social mobility that they say they will, right? So be a hundred with your kids, like have right. real conversations with your, with your children about what they are stepping into and the conversations I've been having with teachers, with parents and with young people is like, how can we be grounded in the power of our ancestors and the power of our own legacies to know that I am capable of navigating the everydayness of this system while questioning it, moving into places of power and, and making spaces of change. I got young people operating as activists, creating programs in their schools where they can hold the school accountable. We got all these schools now, all these institutions with, with statements and testimonies about anti-racism, but they're not actualizing it. Right. And so creating those spaces in the school where those young people have that accountability, having that sense of advocacy, equipping young people with the critical consciousness to understand the system that they're going through so that they can be a part of the change as they go through it. To me, that's the safety. And I think it's also important as part of that to just name it straight up for our kids. A lot of people dance around the issue thinking that it's too much of a burden to name that the systemic But you know why? I think, it's, I think it's because of what she said. This, it's our, the moral dilemma, right? And we're going to talk about that in another episode. But it's the moral dilemma of what she said, not leaving them in systems that harm them. Like that whole, the whole decision. Yeah, I mean, it comes out of I mean, a lot of things keep it with in them. addition to that. It's just is really important that as part of that foundational first step that you are comfortable acknowledging it for our kids because it's just like everything else in life with children. They know. Right, but and we don't we don't name it for ourselves before we like we got to we got to own it for ourselves. We got to recognize the dilemma ourselves. Well, We're, some of us do. But what I'm saying is adults do recognize it. They just don't name it always. And it's really important to name it for the kids because they know it's their lived yeah. experience. And by not naming it, we are perpetuating that subconscious lesson that you have to endure it to get what you are supposed to get out of this institution. And you absolutely don't. And that's conversations that I have with my kids constantly. This is what I was saying, like the gaslighting. Our children are feeling this every day and no one is helping them to name it. But I understand the impetus to protect them, right? Because now they're getting messages that because of what they look like, there are like limitations to them being able to truly live in the, in the purest state of their, their childhood. And that's really hard. But somebody said, you know, when is it okay to tell children the truth about racism? And then the response was, when is it okay to lie to them? Right. Amen. <laughs> and also an absence of you naming it and talking about it with your child, you're still teaching them something. Exactly. Crucial. So diving into your work a little, tell us about how one's language, race, and power intersect to create educational inequity. So language was a huge part of what was manipulated for the subjugation of our people during the time of slavery, as well as colonialism and imperialism. During the transatlantic slave trade, when West Africans were brought to this country, they were separated by language so that they couldn't communicate and rebel. In the colonization of Africa and in other parts of the world, the colonizing forces would, in schools especially, really double down and enforce the colonial language on the children as a way to break their cultural ties to their own communities. Mm -hmm. And it's a form of psychological subjugation. Language has been this place of saying, 
learning the language of the people in power is also learning the ideologies and politics and norms and values of the people in power because language is that powerful. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you erase people's language and you break them from their language, you're breaking them from more than words. And this has been a tactic in slavery, in colonialism, in imperialism for centuries. And now we have school practices where standard English is prioritized at the expense of the language practices that Black children bring to school with them every day because of our history across the diaspora, across the globe. We have language practices that are rooted still in the West African language practices that we come from. But now it's just seen as ghetto. Like, we're just like, oh, it's ghetto. Because right. in the Black community, we don't even know that, that our language practices are valuable and valid. Because we have been surviving for so long that it's really hard for us to understand that we have values, practices, and ways of knowing outside of the scope of white supremacy that we need to start really being okay with. Amen. Just listen to you talk about this all day. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering if you think our issues, particularly in private school, are they more systemic or institutional? Um, I think it's both. I think so. My concern is, you know, as we talk about these issues of race, you can't talk about race without talking about capitalism. Yeah. And it's the economic piece in as it intersects with race that I think makes the private school space very unique in its challenges because even within the black community we were talking about operating along lines of class we got public school systems that are funded by property taxes which means that if you're in a low-income community your school is under resourced and you're still taking the same standardized tests and being measured in the same way as everybody else so all of those things overlap in institutional and systemic ways so let's, let's focus a little bit on the classroom because that's where a lot of the harm tends to show up. What steps can educational institutions take right now to immediately address inequity in the classroom? And I know, you know, it's a process and doing curriculum review takes time, but what are the things that we could do right now? I can't say one thing for every institution. I think every, every institution needs to be doing like that deep reflection to unearth how are our institutional norms and practices rooted in white colonial ideologies in the same way that that school in Massachusetts needed to know that they should not have a policy that would punish those black girls for having box braids in their hair. Right. You know, if you don't start with being able to, be accountable for those things or to even notice that it's racist in the first place, then it, you, the lives of those students in the classroom is just, it's just not a place of wellness for black students at all. So I think that that schools need to go to have like deep ideological and institutional reflection on their practices. Mm-hmm. And they, they can um, start to unpack that along the lines of their outcome. They know the racial disparities that are happening in their schools and use those as areas of getting to work and making sure that they are mandating that not on anyone's watch should there be a whitewashed curriculum at somebody's school, because this is not the world that we live in. Not on anybody's watch should there be any kind of racism that occurs without accountability. Our young people get punished and they get measured all the time along the lines of what we value. Yet a lot of racist incidents go unchecked because we don't value it enough to put systems in place to hold it accountable. 
And so it really varies from institution to institution, but there's some fundamental things like that that I feel need to happen. And so coming out of that, we got one final question for you. You had mentioned before that we're busy having these false conversations in these schools. How do we get to the real conversations? To me, the real conversation, this is the scary conversation, is we got to dismantle white supremacy. Right. It's not our job as a people, as a nation, to halt the work of equity to, so that we could cater to white comfort. We got real work to do out here. So that's a great place for right? parents so, to start, right? Just getting their schools to own and take responsibility for naming their goal to dismantle white supremacy. There's so many of our schools that haven't taken even just that basic step. Well, I think my hesitancy, not hesitancy, but where I need more thought and collaboration on this is I'm a direct human being. We all know this. But the thought of walking into one of my children's schools and and being that direct. is scary. uh, It's scary. Yeah. And. Well, you asked for the real. <laughs> right. Amen. And I'm, I'm all about the real. And my worry is the repercussions that would befall realness. my children. Right. And that's every being that concern. real. Yep. It hasn't stopped me. <laughs> but see, this is why this is what I'm trying to emphasize when I say fugitivity and abolition, because we understand that our survival is at stake. Like that there, that mindset, like just dismantle everything. It's just, we're not there. Like we can't have the world that we want, but there are ways. There's a tenant in critical race theory called interest convergence. And it's really about the fact that the gains that have come for black people in history have come when they've converged with the interests of white people. Hmm. So it's not that we make gains for any other reason. And it's actually kind of like a tactic. Like what are the ways that interests converge? That's why I spoke about, the statement, there are equity statements at these schools that say that they're doing X, Y, and Z, and they're not doing those things. Yes, ma'am. So in the ways that, and they don't know how to do those things. Right. And so you got a budget, these interests can converge, and there are ways that we can create something in the interim. But again, to me, without eye on abolition as a long time goal. Perfectly said. Do you see schools taking this really seriously and owning it successfully? Who's addressing and working hard to do this and make sure their school's equitable? Yes, I do. If you're not following the abolitionist teaching network, then they're just doing some amazing work, period. Schenectady School District is like amazing. Having um, visited them and seeing how at the district level, they are making sure that every stakeholder is equipped with the knowledge, with the background, with the tools for engaging in anti-racism. There are accountability measures that are being put in. There's data that's being collected. They have a budget dedicated to buying resources for district-wide change. It's really dope work that's happening. So I would say there are plenty, and I can send more, but those are the two that have been, like... That's great. So then what did did it take to get them there? Like, did something happen there? (laughs) So they had a a district-wide event. It was a 1,000 people at the event. They bought my book for every person at the event. Wow. It became a part of a mandated conference for everybody to annually, they have to, they get the resources, they get the training, they have accountability measures that they have to take back into their schools and communities. I don't know how they got there, 
But I know that it's really, really powerful work. And I was, I've been moved to, to see the work that they're doing. We, we might need to talk to yeah. them, take some notes. Nah, they're fire. <laughs> Let's do it. Excellent. Well, our time is up with you. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. J. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Before we sign off, we want to let you know, Erase listeners, that we are love, 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 loving your feedback. You are hitting us up via text, via Facebook, Instagram, and we love what you have to say. Yeah, I got to keep that stuff coming. So I just want to share a few. So I'm not going to name any names, but I am (laughs) ex-parent at ex-school in Los Angeles. I just want to say I'm in love with your podcast. I share so many episodes with friends struggling with DEI issues at their independent schools. And with folks across the faculty and board, I've been pushing these issues for years. Thank you for giving me some tips and tools. All right, that's one. And then the other, I love this because it gives us some insight into what we should be talking about. Hmm, I find the glacial pace of school change to be painful. We talked about that last last week, week before last. Every week. (laughs) Pacing for privilege. One thing that was addressed in the podcast today that I would like to hear more about is how people like to say things are too political to talk about, but how that is not true. I would love to hear from curriculum directors or more DEI directors on how to frame this conversation for schools so that they understand this isn't some kind of political indoctrination. Love the suggestion. Absolutely. It happens to align perfectly with one of our episodes planned for this season where we will indeed talk to a diversity, equity, and inclusion director, and talk about their practice in schools. So thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of Erased, when we will explore racial literacy, how we're discussing race with our own kids, and more from racial literacy professional Charles Adams. Remember to rate and review us on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. And you can always learn more about us at ErasePodcast.com. That is Erased with a C. Or on IG or Facebook at Erased Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Colette Bowers-Zinn. And I'm Lisa Johnson. See you all for the next episode of Erased.